Squares Fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Friends, welcome once again to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. Man, every time I listen to that intro, my feet start itching, man. I want to get out there and, and uh, listen to a hound. Uh, you hear those whippoorwills calling and uh, tires crunching on the old gravel road and hear an old cruise come on with that big old walker dog mouth on that tree. <laughs> my good friends... Rob and Frank Giddings up in Michigan uh, open our show every week. And, uh, man, it's it's just really good to be with you again. I'm going to fly this one solo this week. I usually have guests and, and really try my best to get uh, guests that you will enjoy and, and people with experience and, and they're good storytellers and Everything that I can to make this podcast interesting. And this week I thought I would do things just a little different. I'm going to be here with all my friends, as they say. <laughs> just me here in the studio by myself, here in the Gone to the Dog studio on the Gulf Coast of Florida today, coming at you. And uh, what I thought I might do is do a little um, looking back. Uh, which I tend to do a lot at my age. I think guys at my age do that. But uh, looking back at some of the stories and publications and things that I've, I have enjoyed over the years, maybe share a little bit with you uh, some of those things. Many of you know the namesake of this podcast, Gone to the Dogs, uh, is actually my book, Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey. Um, I wrote the book, uh, actually had it published uh, through my friend Terry Walker with CNH Publishing Company uh, back in uh, 2015. So, man, we're looking at about seven years since I introduced that book. And I sure am thankful for all the sales that have been uh, made down through the years, and I've always tried to contribute to things like charities, uh, benefits, youth events, and so forth, and and present copies of the book. I will tell you that the book, um, in its first printing, is starting, the shelf is starting to look a little bare, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to reprint the book or not, Uh, and this day and age, I think people are more uh, accustomed to getting their news from the Internet. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I certainly am thankful that book sales have remained pretty steady uh, over that period of time. Uh, But I do have a few copies left, and I'll leave a little promo at the end of this podcast about how you can get one. But uh, the book uh, is uh, 200 pages and 22 essays or chapters, I believe. And I thought it would be kind of interesting today to look at the book a little bit, uh, maybe share uh, some of those essays with you, and also look at some other books that have been uh, enjoyable to me that uh, I'm not sure some of these are available out there for you to pick up anymore. Occasionally they come up on Amazon or eBay or some uh, source like that, but the prices are usually pretty steep. But um, one of the 
the uh, essays or chapters in my book is called Now and Then. And uh, this uh, was uh, particularly interesting to me and and maybe uh, appropriate now because the story took place uh, almost 100 years ago. And, of course, um, you know, the the 100-year mark has been in my mind quite a bit with uh, my mother reaching her 100th birthday back on March 19th. And then, unfortunately, we did lose her at the end of March. Um, and then, just recently, I was so pleased to see um, that a longtime friend and a legend in the plot world, uh, Mr. Leroy Haug uh, from Fer- Ferdinand, Indiana, uh, recently had his 100th birthday. Leroy is a decorated World War II hero. I mean, the real deal, and he bred uh, purebred plot hounds for many, many years. And on last week's podcast, our guest, Mark Dufresne, talked about uh, the swampland-bred plot dogs that he hunted with in his earliest memory of bear hunting as a kid, and those were the dogs bred by the Leroy Howe. So uh, we'll send a, a happy 100th birthday out to Mr. Howe and Hope that he has a great uh, uh, birthday and um, certainly wish him many, many more years. Uh, But at any rate, this story that inspired the chapter called Now and Then took place uh, back in 1924. And as I read this uh, story in a book called... uh, Hounds and, uh, no, Cooning with Cooners, uh, which is a book published by the old hunter-trader-trapper magazine in Ohio, I began to think about how things were back in that day and how uh, different they are today. And the interesting thing about the setting of this story and the time frame especially is the fact that uh, there was a pandemic going on. And, of course, we know that we've been through this thing now uh, for a couple of years with this COVID-19 pandemic. So, anyway, I want to share this story with you from my book, Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey, and then talk with you a little bit about the story. We may pause a time or two as we go through this. It's not r- very long. Uh, and uh, maybe discuss some of the items that are in this story. So if you um, have a cup of coffee or maybe a bowl of popcorn (laughs) handy or a nice glass of iced tea, settle back for a story from Gone to the Dogs of Coon Hunter's Journey titled Now and Then. His father, farmer and local politician Alonzo P., and his mother Nancy, no doubt raised Guy Beeman the way thousands of boys were raised in the early years of 20th century America, on the family farm. History doesn't attribute famous deeds to Guy, and his name would otherwise go unnoticed to this writer, but for two things. 
He wrote a story that was published in 1924 in a compilation of light coon hunting stories previously published in the then popular Hunter Trader Trapper magazine. And he lived in Newburgh Township in Cass County, Michigan. Whether or not his family approved of this coon hunter, uh, coon hunting ways is not known. He was 39 years of age when he wrote his story and by all considerations was his own man. His father was a prominent figure in local politics, having served as treasurer for his township and for Cass County as a director of the school board for 18 years and as the commander of the Jones, Michigan chapter of the Grand Army of the Republic, the GAR. Because his published story of a coon hunt with a pair of great coonhounds named Fanny and Jack took place in a location familiar to me, Guy Beeman became the catalyst for the historical journey I invite you to take with me that will give us a glimpse of coon hunting nearly 100 years ago. I hunted raccoons in Cass County and neighboring Van Buren County, Michigan, from January of 1983 until the first week of November 2004. That was a period of nearly 22 years. Most of my hunting was done in Van Buren County, southwest of the city of Kalamazoo and just northeast of Jones, where Guy Beeman lived. I moved my family to the area to assume the job of field operations manager for the United Kennel Club. This was 32 years ago at the time the book was written. The terrain is typical upper Midwest farm country with grain crops, wetlands, and plenty of hardwood timber. The years I hunted there were the best of my coon hunting life. And man, that is absolutely true. No doubt things have changed in this sport significantly over those 32 years, and even more so over the 100-year span from Beeman's story until today. Foremost would be the rapid change in technology that's now inseparably interwoven into the sport. When I moved to the area, I was yet to experience the use of an electronic locating device. No one else had one either, for that matter. My hound locator was a hollowed-out cow horn worn across my upper body via a leather strap. My hounds were trained to answer the horn and to come in when they heard the mournful sound. My light source was a 4-volt wheat light wet cell mining light purchased at a flea market in the southern West Virginia area, and my boots were nine eyelet imported rubber boots purchased at the local Kmart for $5 a pair. Think about that, fellas. I bought my first pair of hip boots, heavy green rubber affairs with molded white soles and bearing the Coon Hunter brand at the tops after my first attempt to negotiate those Michigan swamps in the ankle-high imports I wore back home. You know, I, I can remember so many stories about wading those creeks back in West Virginia with ice in them. We'd take those boots off, tie the laces together, sling them over, uh, over our shoulder or around our neck, wade the stream, get to the other side, put our socks back on and our boots and roll our pant legs down. But that's enough about me. Let your 
imagination free will back to the spring of 1918, just eight months before the close of World War I, as the raccoon season in Michigan is coming to a close. Now this is what Beeman wrote in Cooning with Cooners. At different times during the past two years, the story would come to Bert Simmons and I how some coon hunters had been after a large coon, but after a long, hard chase, he had fooled them. Just before law closed in March of 1918, Bert came down with his coon dog, Queen. I unchained Ed, Fanny, and Jack, and we were soon in the woods. It was an ideal night for coon. It had rained and stayed cloudy. We hadn't gone far until they opened on a hot trail. After a short run, they treed and we had a nice male coon. We hunted until 12 and had, besides the coon, two skunk. We were almost home and I was telling Bert how near dead I was when his queen opened on a hot track. Fanny and Jack were soon in and they started for the mill's pond, three quarters of a mile away. Just then, Bert called and said he had found some coon tracks. I went to him and found a track larger than usual. The dogs were running him at a good fox clip. When we got to the pond he had been in, also in every tree for ten rods along the shore, Jack was up in an old leaning tree and said, Treed. Queen and Fanny were not sure enough to sit down and stay. Boys is up to you now to shake him out. That's old Jack <laughs> talking to the hunters. We couldn't locate him, so we took them and circled the pond. When we were almost back, they all opened on trail where he had left one of the trees. He went back almost over the ground where he came from down for three quarters of a mile, dogs running hard and well bunched. Talk about music. Fanny and Queen chopping it and Jack's long, clear voice did sound good on the midnight air to two tired coon hunters. They went almost one mile when we swung east for about a half mile for another large pond. I could not see how he could make it, but he did. It was a large pond full of water and brush. For one full hour he stayed in, would not tree or come out. At last he left, and Fanny was pushing him. She soon had joined, was joined by Queen and Jack. They had gone perhaps 40 rods when Jack began pushing ahead. In a few moments, we heard him say, I've got you, old boy. It was his second coon, and he is game. But believe me, he sure got some beating before health came. They were too late, for he was in the water again. But the pond looked too small to the old boy for him and the three hounds. He got out and got a start, but Jack caught him again, and his head and ears looked next morning as though he'd been kicked by hay feeder. I don't know exactly what a hay feeder would do to a dog's head, but there you go. He got away and threw some wire fences and made it for the large pond again, when within about four rods of it he treed on an old basswood tree about ten feet from the ground, and there was a crack in it. To close, we'll say at six o'clock, we were going home with a poor old coon. 
Some of his teeth were gone, and he measured 50 inches from tip to tip. Now, that's a typical story that you'd read in this book, Cooning with Cooners, and it was published back around the turn of the century. But my story goes on this way. Before we take a look at the components of Guy's story for the purpose of comparison to the time of our own experiences, can we collectively agree that storytelling is a lost art to coon hunters of today? Stories such as that of Guy Beeman have given way to play-by-play accounts of one or two-hour scorecard contests, and that's not surprising, for indeed that's what the sport of coon hunting has become. The sister publication to American Cooner, Full Cry was once ripe with the renderings of O.L. Beckham, Obe Corey, and a myriad other writers that would twist the coon hunting yarn like a ranch hand's lariat and leave the reader begging for just one more turn of the page. I'm showing my age here, but I admit when the competition fire was burning hot within my chest, I shunned the literary side of the magazines in favor of stud ads and winner's shots. Now that the fire is being contained, I covet those old stories like an expectant mother craves a dill pickle. Let's permit our imaginations to take over for a moment. I can see Guy and his friend Bert walking out to the barn after supper and the evening chores were done to pull an old, oiled canvas tarp off the Model T Ford Guy bought new for $360, which was the advertised price two years earlier. The Model T was introduced in March of 1908 at a price of $850, which was increased to $950 by 1910. Imagine that, $950 for an automobile. The price Guy paid, less than half the original figure, was made possible by a reduction in production costs due to the moving assembly line that Henry Ford introduced at the Highland Park, Michigan Ford plant five years earlier in 1913. Coon hunters in Guy's day normally walked to the woods because they hunted on either family lands or those of their adjacent neighbors. But the coon hunters may have been among the limited number of people living in America that had the luxury of driving to their hunts, largely in tin lizzies, as the Model T Ford automobile was called in those days. The book, Cooning with Cooners, in which Guy's story appears, has several accounts of coon hunts taken in Model T's. The Model T was an all-round multi-purpose vehicle because it could easily transverse or tra- <laughs> transverse rutted farm lanes, climb hills, and assume the role of ATV and tractor. Some farmers removed a tire, attached a belt to the hub, and used the wheel as a power takeoff to run sawmills and other sorts of rudimentary machinery. However they traveled... They were lucky to be healthy enough to go hunting in midst of the national pandemic of influenza that was sweeping the nation in that day. I just had to pause there just a second, you know, to 
look back, that's been, I guess, about 100 years, as I said, uh, since we had a pandemic in this country. And until I did some research for this article, I didn't understand uh, just how sweeping and how uh, uh, devastating that pandemic of influenza was. Okay, I continue with the story now. After removing the tarp, starting the Model T could be an interesting affair. I wonder how many of my listeners out there today would know how to start a Model T Ford. I certainly didn't until I did some research. First, a preliminary check of oil and water levels was accomplished. A mixture of 30 to 40% wood alcohol was added to the radiator, to prevent freezing in Michigan's cold winters. Before he used the hand crank located in the front of the car below the radiator to start the engine, Guy would have climbed into the driver's seat, made sure the emergency brake neutral lever on the floor to the left of the steering wheel was all the way back and the rear brakes were set. He didn't want the car to run over him when he turned the crank to start the engine. He would have made sure that the spark adjust lever to the left below the steering wheel was moved to retard spark position, and he would have moved the throttle lever found below and to the right of the steering wheel to approximately a quarter of the way down. Up is neutral, and all the way down is as fast as the car will go. He checked the magneto slash off slash battery switch on the dash panel to see that it was in the off position. Stepping to the front of the Model T, Guy pulled the wire ring that served as the hand choke, found at the lower left corner of the radiator. He pulled that ring all the way out. With the battery magneto switch still in the off position, he turned the crank a couple of turns until he reached the point just past compression. He then turned the switch to the battery ses- setting, and the coils began to buzz. Sometimes the engine would start without further cranking, but this time, due to cold weather, an additional single careful turn was necessary. Now listen to this, guys and gals. <laughs> He cupped his fingers and thumb of his right hand to one side of the handle, being careful not to grip the handle for fear the handle would kick back and break a finger or thumb. He ratcheted the handle to the down position and pulled sharply up to compression and the 177 cubic inch four-cylinder engine sprang to life. Well, assume Guy had cobbled together some form of a dog box out of a vegetable crate, uh, although in all the photos I've seen of Model T's on coon hunts, I've never seen one with the dog box. He and Bert would have then loaded Fanny and Jack and Queen for the coming hunt. He mentioned a dog named Ed at the beginning of his story, but nothing more was revealed about this dog as the story progressed. Michigan weather in March can be iffy at best, but Guy and Bert came upon a bit of luck in that. They had a dark, damp night for their hunt. I'll pause right here again and uh, just uh, 
imagine we have these vehicles now that we have a fob that we carry in our pocket and we push a button. We can start them from inside the house if we want, or we simply have a single button on the dash that we provided the pot, the fob is in our pocket. We just push that button and start the car. <laughs> Imagining all those steps that uh, Guy had to go through to get that Model T started was pretty amusing to me. I'll continue. Illumination for the night's hunt would have come from a kerosene lantern. Likely the lantern they used was manufactured by Dietz in either New York City or most likely in Syracuse, New York. It may have been of the, the Little Wizard design that was introduced three years earlier in January of 1914, or perhaps the D-Light model introduced in 1912, five years before the hunt. The Dietz motto was a maximum of light with a minimum of care. The lantern would have produced approximately 200 hours of nine candle power bright walking light on a gallon of K1 kerosene. <laughs> I have to pause right here as we look at gas prices in the $5 range. This next sentence becomes pretty amazing. Kerosene at the time of the hunt was running about 15.2 cents per gallon. A gallon of kerosene would have provided nearly 17 dust to dawn nights of hunting at a cost of less than a penny a night. Think about it. Perhaps the gun they carried to dispatch coons from the numerous hardwoods of the area was an old 22 caliber Winchester fall block actioned Winder musket, nicknamed for its founder, Colonel C.B. Winder, and manufactured by Winchester after buying the patent and manufacturing rights from John Browning in 1883. 35 years before our story is when uh, uh, that patent was bought. The rifle would have been a chamber for either 22 short or 22 long rifle and would have weighed a hefty eight and a half pounds. Or if they were lucky, they may have had the upscale Remington Model 12 pump repeater that was introduced in 1908. Uh, coon were very scarce in that day in a hunt in which two coon were caught, even though it took all night to do so, was a very good hunt indeed. We've come a long way in the nearly 100 years since Guy Beeman's story. We even have remote start buttons for our vehicles, as I've mentioned. We've made progress in many ways, but it hasn't come without considerable price. Hunting territory was virtually unlimited in Guy's day, although coons were much more scarce back then. Raccoon populations, due to the reduction in hunters and available lands, on which to hunt have burgeoned since the damp, dark night in 1918. Technology and the American farmer's industry to produce grain crops at record levels across the heartland produce an unlimited food source for all creatures, great and small. 
while Guy and Bert's monetary investment in the hunt consisted at most of a $300 automobile, a lantern that sold for $0.35, and a firearm that cost $5 or less. Today's coon hunter invests what Guy and his partner would consider to be a king's ransom when compared to the cost of things in their day. Four-door crew cab pickups easily top forty grand now. I've looked at some uh, on a lot recently that were eighty grand. The diamond plate dog box costs eight hundred dollars, and the GPS tracking system another seven or eight hundred, and on and on. It costs two dollars and fifty cents or more to move a four before pickup 15 miles down the road. Now, I'll stop right here and tell you that was back in 2015. <laughs> that price is easily doubled today. Coonhound puppies cost as much as the Model T guy drove, and commercial dog food costs more for a 40-pound bag than Guy and Bert had wrapped up in their entire hunting outfit, gun, lights, boots, and all. Perhaps more than the monetary differences in Kunun today and in the early 20th century is the quality of the hunt itself. In other words, I believe Guy Beeman enjoyed coon hunting in ways today's hunters no longer appreciate or understand. I'll explain. In all the accounts of Final Fours published in Coonhound publications, do you recall an account of a good race lasting even 30 minutes, not to mention an hour or more, such as a, uh, recounted here by Guy Beeman. Races of this nature were common years ago. I recall one such race in a 100-acre cornfield along Hoffman Road in St. Joseph County, Michigan in the 1980s. With the dogs ran the coon into a hole in the cornfield after a non-stop one-hour race. Mark Blount, the originator of the, originator of the custom-built dog box, and a friend of mine named Robert Gallantine from West Virginia were with me on this hunt, and we had four coonhounds, two plots, a train walker, and an English coonhound in the race. You could have covered all four hounds with a blanket for the entire chase. Why don't coons run like this today? Has the soft living and abundant food supply created a generation of lazy raccoons? Has living in close proximity to man reduced the fear factor that drove raccoons and guys experienced to literally run for their lives while coons today leisurely take the first available tree when hearing a coonhound bark? Are the bucket coons passing this behavior on to their offspring? Furthermore, have the one- and two-hour competition hunts produced a one- or two-hour hunter? Is that time frame considered the norm now when, in Guy's day, a dust-to-dawn walk over torturous terrain was more common than not? Have today's coon hunters gone soft under the influence of convenience and technology? I believe the answer to both questions is an unequivocal Yes, I know that I'm not the hunter I used to be. I have an excuse as I edge nearer to, at this time, three score and ten years of life. I've done that now and five more besides. 
And I know if I'm not doing it, I have no right to criticize anyone else. There's really no crime in taking advantage of the technology and the advances and convenience that we have at our fingertips today. We'd be foolish not to do so. But I can't help but think that Guy and Bert riding in a Model T, carrying a kerosene lantern, and hunting from sun to sun had more fun, and that's what the sport is supposed to all be about. I have the old Remington Model 41 bolt-action single-shot rifle that my dad and brothers bought in the 1930s. I can buy a current model of the Dietz Little Wizard kerosene lantern online for less than $30, and a gallon of kerosene, well, used to be for about $3.50. I may just leave the electronic devices on the shelf and get my buddies Together this fall for a retro coon hunt, a la 1918. Maybe we can recreate the magic of hunting in simpler times. Progress can be a wonderful thing. It can change our lives in ways we never expected or may not appreciate. As I ponder our sport now and then, I believe Guy Beeman just may have had the better idea. What do you think, folks? Do you think things were better back then than they are now? You know, we talk a lot about that. We talk about whether the dogs were better. We talk about whether, uh, you know, uh, coons, as I said in this article, did coons run better back then? Uh, Are there more coons today than there were then? Absolutely. Uh, I believe the abundance of coons, uh, some of it due to the lack of hunting and trapping pressure, others due to the uh, decrease or decline, uh, uh, you know, of of the colder-nosed uh, hound, some would say, could be a reason. I don't know. Uh, dogs would spend more time back then uh, you know, grinding it out, and they pretty much caught every coon that they stuck their nose in his track. And fur prices, of course, uh, were much better back in that day and, and prompted more and more people to get out and get involved in coon hunting. I don't know. Uh, again, you know, we talk about is this the golden age of coon hunting? Uh, I believe Guy was certainly before the golden age. Uh, my personal view is that we experienced, especially in competition hunting, the golden age in the 80s and 90s. But uh, I hope you enjoyed that uh, chapter from Gone to the Dogs, a coon, hunting's, a coon Hunter's Journey. Uh, the book is available at stevefielderbooks.com. And uh, the prices are going to go up. They're going to have to go up a little bit simply because the supply is dwindling very quickly. Uh, doing these podcasts, I want to just do a little heart-to-heart with you this week. It's my podcast. I know when Buddy Woodbury gave me this platform, he said, Steve, this is your podcast. You do with it as you like. And that's exactly what I've tried to do. But it's pretty amazing to me that I've been at this podcasting gig now for three years. Uh, It was back on May 2nd of 2019 
that Chris Powell and I embarked on our uh, journey with the Houndsman XP podcast. And uh, then, as as friends may know, uh, took a little different route, and it was August 10th of 2020 uh, that uh, Nick Gilliland and Brent Reeves and I started the uh, Nightlife Nation podcast. And uh, here we go. Uh, it was on September 27th of 2021, which was last fall, uh, that I started out on this journey alone with the Gone to the Dogs uh, podcast. And uh, now this is my 38th episode of writing uh, um, the solo train, so to speak. So this podcasting journey is interesting. It's it's fun. I enjoy it. I enjoy getting to talk to uh, a lot of different people, and there's just so many people out there to contact. And while Chris Powell and I were kind of the pioneers back in 2019, uh, there's now easily ten to maybe a dozen or so guys that are doing podcasts. Uh, or at least appearing regularly as hosts on podcasts uh, that uh, focus on tree dogs, either big game dogs, coon dogs, squirrel dogs, or whatever. So (laughs) I'll remember at Autumn Oaks that first year when we introduced uh, uh, the podcast, uh, we spent most of our time uh, showing people on their phones how to access a podcast. Most people had never heard of one and didn't know how to access them. I'll confess that uh, I was one of those guys that had listened to very few podcasts when I started down this road. But now it's it's a way of life for us, and it certainly is enjoyable. And and, uh, the more the merrier. You know, there's more subject matter out there. More people get to tell their stories. so this podcasting thing, I think, is here to stay. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of uh, coon hunting is now appearing in video, and that opens up a whole can of worms um, for the registries, and I'm not sure how they're going to handle all this when uh, you know every move out there in the dark is going to be revealed for people to see. And... Uh, whether it generates more questions or more controversy or whether it, uh, the one thing that I don't understand too well how it's going to work is in terms of logistics. How are we going to uh, handle a great number of dogs under a video format? And uh, I don't know. I think uh, probably what's going to happen is just what, uh, is happening now is uh, maybe the major events, the final fours, uh, maybe uh, videoed and presented online. But, uh, you know, technology is moving so fast, so very, very fast. Well, I wanted to catch up just a little bit on my personal dogs and what I've been doing and uh, you know, at 75 years old, I'm not kidding anybody. I'm not hunting as hard as I used to. I think I probably would if I still lived in Michigan. 
or somewhere where coon hunting, you know, was fairly simple uh, as far as, you know, terrain and accessibility and so forth. Uh, when I was back on the uh, Nightlife Nation podcast, I talked about quite quite a bit about a dog named Cruz, a uh, train walker male that I acquired from Lone Pine Kennels in Pennsylvania. And uh, Cruz was an excellent bred tree and walker dog. His sire was out of bone collector. His sire, uh, Cruiser, was actually a, a dual grand champion. Uh, had, uh, you know, really uh, shown out, so to speak, as far as being uh, the top dog in, in a zone hunt leading to the world championship and things like that. And he was out of, uh, out of uh, the cruise, uh, the uh, bone collector dog. And, of course, everybody knows bone collector. And Cruz, uh, that sire, uh, Cruiser, was a littermate brother uh, to the million-dollar baby female that Lone Pine Kennels had uh, that made several Final Fours, including, I think, second in the UKC World Championship. And then Cruz's mother, Thelma, was out of a dog called T-Rex, who was a littermate brother to the 2016 uh, UKC World Champion, uh, Lone Pine Biffy Sue. So... You know, the dog was very well-bred, and he got off to a great start, and I was so excited about him. But then he started missing, and he started missing bad. And uh, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And my friends, uh, especially Jamie Perrin down uh, up in state of Alabama, convinced me to get him checked for uh, thyroid issues and whether that was the problem with Cruz or not, I do know that his thyroid was extremely low. I do know that Randy Smith has not had any thyroid problems whatsoever in his dogs. And uh, I don't know exactly what happened to Mr. Cruz. I, I was fortunate to be able to place Cruz with a young hunter up in Virginia that really loves him. He's a, he's a kid that hunts with his grandpa and at this stage in the game just wants a dog uh, to be able to participate in the hunt. And we're hoping with the medication that Cruz will turn around and become the dog that he was at a younger age. Uh, so that's just, you know, one of the disappointments that comes along in the sport of coon hunting. We, we uh, have... S such high hopes for a pup and certainly my pup, my hopes were sky high with Cruz. We took him uh, to the PKC World Championship, hunted two nights. He didn't look very good the first night. Second night looked really good. Um, you know, qualified for that hunt and so forth. So he was very capable, very promising. Had him up and hunted all summer with Frank Giddings and Frank saw some Really good work out of him. But this this thyroid thing is an issue that's got me shaking my head, and I'm doing some research on my own. I've talked to several people about it, and I'm hoping to kind of find some answers that I can pass along. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, things that could be happening there, you know, physically that I'm not sure about. 
But uh, we certainly wish old Cruz the best and uh, hope that he lives a long life and, and makes this young man very happy that uh, that he has him. I'm going to be personally monitoring uh, the uh, medicine that he's taking and so forth to uh, to help this uh, kid along. And so at any rate, that, that's the story on Cruz. Well, I have co-ownership in two dogs right now, and they're both pups. Uh, one of them was born on my birthday on October 12th of uh, 2021. The other one was born on October 11th, 2021. One is Tree Walker. One is a plot hound. Uh, the uh, Tree Walker is uh, co-owned now uh, by my friend uh, Keston Jesse up in Lebanon, uh, Virginia. Uh, she is a beautiful pup, very smart, and uh, at this point hasn't shown a lot of interest. But uh, knowing Keston, he's about a five or six night a week coon hunter. He just um, has been uh, through the process of starting a really nice pup, a male that came from Lone Pine Kennels. It's out of uh, the uh, of Sean Burden's uh, Cooney Valley Pack dog. And um, well, Lone Pine Fran is this dam. And uh, uh, he at 10 months old, this dog has treed, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 coons for Keston. So uh, anyway, the the uh, that female is out of uh, Trackman Semen and Lone Pine Jillian. Jillian's out of Bone Collector and Lone Pine Sioux. So we should uh, know something more about her within a few weeks or so. Hopefully, Keston can get her get that flip uh, that switch flipped. And near and dear to my heart, I have a male plot pup that came from the kennel of Bill Scheninger up in Ohio, the Saddle Up uh, Plots. His dog Lazarus won plot days last year with high-scoring dog all three nights. So uh, I got this male pup that happens to be out of Dancer, Bear Pen, Tennessee, Walsh, a female that Tony Beals and I own together. Bill Scheniger, uh acquired her. Uh, unfortunately, Dancer died when her puppies were about 12 days old, I believe. And uh, Bill's wife, Cindy, did a great job bottle feeding these pups and raising them up. Uh, and so uh, I have a partner, Mark Miller, in Taylorsville, North Carolina, who... Uh, is uh, is the uh, partner with me on Bear Pen Fever. He's a black back, uh, brindle trim, plot male. Uh, Mark put him in a bench show last weekend and got a best male show on him already. The dog loves water. He's always sending me videos of him swimming across a, a pretty good-sized pond. Uh, he's uh, going with the do- uh, Mark's walkers. Now, Mark has got an exceptional walker dog, a dog called Crockett that is now a Grand Knight Champion too. 
and he needs one win on the bench to be a grand show champion too. Beautiful walker hound, uh, coon treer. And so this plop pup up there is going to have to uh, uh, really get with it to keep up with the old Crockett. But, uh, but he is. He's opening on track. He's going hunting with Crockett. He's staying in there. And as soon as we get him uh, treeing his own coon, then I'm sure Mark will start uh, singling him out. And, uh, and so anyway... As far as coon hounds, I've got two pups. They're about seven months old. They're a day apart, a walker female and a plot male. So that's going to be uh, pretty much uh, my future and what's going to keep me excited here for the the, uh, next few months. And uh, it'll be kind of a toss-up which one I get to take to the the White River in November. Whichever one is doing the better, that's uh, that's the one I'm going to take. Uh, my buddy Nubbin Moore and I've already started making our plans for the White River trip, and oh man, that's been such a great a great time for me. Uh, this will be our eleventh year, I think, uh, if I don't um, miscalculate, and we'll be joining uh, our buddies out there, the same old gang. Uh, for some coon hunting for about seven or eight days. Uh, I wanted to share another story with you, and this one is from the Cooning with Cooners uh, book that I mentioned before that the Guy Beeman story was from. And this uh, is actually the first story in the book, and it's called The Tale of a Coon Hunt by Orma Winter. November 1st, what did that mean? To most people, practically nothing, but to me it was something I had been looking forward to for weeks. It was the first day in the open season for coon hunting. My coon hound, a large, beautifully marked Kentucky black and tan, knew that something was in the air, for he'd been trying to get out of the pen all afternoon. He was a thoroughbred in every sense of the word, and many an old veteran coon had he treed after hours of hard trailing. I'll pause right here to tell you that this book, uh, Cooning, Cooning with Cooners, was published in, I believe, let's see if I can find the date here real quick. I think it was about 1907. But I'll find that date for you. And it was the custom back in that day to borrow from the horse industry, I guess, and call a purebred hound a thoroughbred. Now, I have no idea what a Kentucky black and tan was, but apparently um, this fellow had gotten his dog from someone in Kentucky, so that made him a Kentucky black and tan. Let's let Orma continue here with his story. I live on a farm just one mile from the Mississippi bottoms and the, where the coon are thick, although hard to get because of so many sloughs. As soon as a coon hears a dog bark on his trail, he makes it at once for the water, which makes it very hard for the dog. I hunted mostly in the bluffs above the river for this reason. 
And here there are a good many caves in which they find a safe retreat from the dogs. I asked Fred Neal, a cousin of mine from a nearby city who had never been coon hunting before, to come out and spend a week of coon hunting with me. We were both just 21 and had spent some good times together. He had arrived that afternoon on the 4 o'clock train. The first thing he said to me was, Well, George, are you ready to start on that coon hunt? I am. And he certainly was. He was rigged out in a complete hunting suit with game bag and a 12-gauge shotgun of the latest design. I smiled and said, no, not now, as the coon don't come out until after dark and it would be no use hunting them until then. I took him out and showed him my hound. He had never seen a dog like this one and thought he was a bloodhound because he had such long ears. We talked about dogs and coon hunting until my mother called us for supper. After supper, I got out my carbide light and a 22 Winchester repeater. My cousin started loading up his shotgun and talking about shooting the coon we were going to get. I smiled a little and told him there was no need to take his gun long at all, as the fine shot at close range spoiled the pelt, sometimes entirely ruining it. Some of the old hunters around here still use the shotgun because they say they can't see to shoot good enough after night with a rifle. I've always used the rifle and usually bring Mr. Coon down with the first shot after shining his eyes. Fred was very much disappointed, but I finally persuaded him to leave it at home by letting him take my rifle. When I stepped out of the door, King let out a chorus of barking that could have been heard for miles. He knew that old he knew that old gun and carbide lighting was more than ready to be off. I told Fred that we would stop at our neighbor's house where two of my friends would join us in the hunt. They had a young hound which they hunted and they wanted to give a little training to him, so they brought him along. Ernest Miller, the elder of my two friends, had been with me on so many a long night's hunt. I was glad to have him along, for he not only enjoyed the sport, but was an expert in tree climbing. Walter, his brother, had also been with us on a number of times. It was just about 7.30 when we started. We were all in high spirits and speculating on how many coon we would get. It was a beautiful moonlight night, rather warm, and a slight wind blowing from the south. I told the boys it was not a very good night for coon hunting, but being the first night of the season, thought we would surely strike something. We decided to cross our neighbor's pasture and into the cornfield bordering the bluffs, where the coon and squirrels took a heavy toll of the golden ears. As soon as we reached the cornfield, I unchained King. He was off like a streak. It seemed like he smelled something already. In just two minutes, he let out a deep bellow, and we knew he had struck a trail. My cousin said, he's got him, and started off as hard as he could for the dog. I yelled for him to come back, but he paid no attention and kept right on after the dog until he ran pell-mell into a barbed wire fence. When we got to him, I thought he was half killed, 
Blood was streaming across his face from a cut on his forehead, and the front of his hunting coat was ripped clear off. Aside from this, we found he was unhurt, although he had cracked the stock of my rifle in his fall. He decided to stay with the rest of us from then on, as I told him there was no use in following the dog until he barked treed. He asked me how I knew when he barked treed when he was barking all the time. I said that the trail bark was long and drawn out, while the tree bark was shorter and louder. Meanwhile, King had uh, been hard after Mr. Coon. I knew that he must be on, on an old one and he would have had him treat by this time. King had taken him out of the cornfield and down in the lower woods, pasture where he had made two or three large circles. King was gaining fast on the coon as his bark was getting louder and more anxious. We were looking for him to bark treat any minute when all of a sudden he start, stopped barking entirely. That coon is up to some devilment, I said. Then he began barking tree, but I could tell by his bark he was not certain yet. I was right, for he only barked tree a few seconds and was off trailing again. I knew then that the coon was doing, I knew then what the coon was doing. He would run up one side of a tree and then jump off on the other side. The dog, upon trailing him up the tree, would at first think he was up there, but when he circled the tree, would pick up the coon's trail again. The coon did this a number of times, but old King was getting into his tricks as he gained steadily on him. Finally, he let out a ringing bellow, followed by another and another. Then the woods just simply rang with his music. Boys, I said, be sh he sure has got the coon this time. We all started for the tree with my cousins taking the lead. I said there's no need to hurry as King would stay until morning. We were all anxious, though, to get to the tree, so ran most of the way, a good half mile. When we got there, he was barking up a large old black oak, which was very tall. Fred said, let me have your light. I think I see him. I did so, and he said, there he is right in that lower crotch. Watch me bring him down. I said, wait a minute and see if you can shine his eyes first. But he could not, so he shot anyway. The coon never moved, so he shot again and again. Are you sure it's a coon you're shooting at, I said. Yes, I know it is. I think he's dead up there in the crotch, said Fred. Well, Ernest, here's a job for you, I said. So he pulled off his coat and began to climb the tree. When he reached the crotch, he began to laugh. The joke is on you, fellas, he said. It's nothing but a squirrel's nest. But you were coming close, as a lot of the bark has been peeled off by the bullets. Can you see anything in the, of the coon above you? I asked. He said no, that he didn't think there was anything up there at all. I told him to climb a little higher, but it was no use. There was no coon in up that tree. I'm going to pause right here just a minute. Tree climbing is one of the worst things that a coon hunter can do. I know it was a custom years ago. In fact, I believe it's the state of Kentucky that has, or maybe still has, or had a shakeout 
season where you could climb the tree and shake the coon out and you just couldn't carry a gun. In my experience with coon hounds and with the registries all those years, I met many people that were paralyzed or incapacitated in some serious way because they fell out of a tree. And even worse than that, there were some cases of guys that were actually killed falling out of a tree trying to shake a coon out. So if you're listening to this story, take it for what it's worth. It's entertainment. It's a guy's account of the way things used to be. But don't climb trees, <laughs> okay? All right, let's get back to the story. King was very seldom, if ever, wrong. When he barked up a tree, the coon was usually there. It looked like he had made a mistake this time. Well, boys, I said, it's no use. We might as well go on. But King wouldn't stir from the tree, although we coaxed and pleaded. As soon as we began to leave the tree, he began to bark louder and more determined than ever. There was a huge white oak tree, still full of dry, dead leaves, right next to the tree King was barking up. That coon is around here someplace, and I'm going to find him. Give me your light, and I'll climb up the white oak. That's what Ernest said. I said I didn't think there was much use, as I didn't see how the coon could cross over into the white oak unless he jumped, and it was a good five feet between the two nearest limbs, although the limb on the black oak was higher than the one on the white oak. There was a possibility of him crossing over, although I had never known of them doing it, unless the limbs were touching or almost touching. Ernest lost no time in climbing the tree as it had a good many limbs on its trunk. When he had climbed as far as he could go, he said, Well, there's no coon up here. I asked him if he could see the top of the tree, and he said, No, that there were too many leaves. He then began to shake the top. By golly, boys, he's up here all right. I feel him coming down. Much to Ernest's (laughs) discomfiture, (laughs) I didn't know that was a word, but that's what it says. Much to Ernest's discomfiture, as he afterwards told us, the coon, a great big 30-pounder, had come down the tree for Ernest. If he had had a gun, he Could have shot the coon easily, but all he had was my carbide light. Ernest said it was the first time in his life he was afraid of a coon. He was sure frightened when he saw those teeth coming at him. When the coon got within arm's length, he shoved the hot flame of the carbide full in the coon's mouth. This was too much for the coon, so he jumped, catching on to another limb below Ernest. All this went on without us hearing or seeing a thing. Ernest came working down the tree, shaking each limb as he came to locate him. He's trying to locate the coon, I guess. All at once, out came Mr. Coon, right over our heads, where we could all see him plain. He was sure a big one, and my cousin had was no time in getting a bead on him. He took three shots to bring him down, and even the dogs had hard work to handle him. We all made a guess as to how much he would weigh, Fred saying that he weighed 50 pounds if he weighed one. When upon weighing him the next day, we found him to weigh just 36 pounds, 
the largest coon I ever saw or got. It had taken us just two hours to get this coon after King had bark treed. I believe he was the hardest one to get I ever had experience with. We got two more coons that night, but neither one gave us the thrill the first one did. King had sure lived up to his reputation that night as he did a few nights later when he swam across the Mississippi River after a coon and treated him in a big elm on the riverbank. But that's another story. My cousin had just simply gone wild over the sport and said he was going to stay all month if I'd let him. We went out a good many times together, getting over 30 coon that fall, but none of our hunts equaled the first night out. Listeners, that's the kind of stories that I grew up on. That's the kind of story that made a coon hunter out of me. It used to be that the magazines were full of stories like that. The great writers would send in the stories of their coon hunts. And this book, Cooning with Cooners, is a compilation of those stories that were sent to Hunter Trader Trapper magazine. And from time to time, I'll share another one of the stories with you, uh, if you enjoy that sort of thing. I know this has been an unusual podcast, one that uh, perhaps has rambled here and there, but uh, I do feel confident that I've shared two pretty good coon hunting stories with you that I hope you found entertaining, and if there's youngsters in your household, I hope you share those stories with them because uh, they certainly were the kind of stories that made my eyes bug out and and uh, really give me a down-deep desire to get out there coon hunting with my dad. Uh, That's all for this week. Uh, We will visit with our old friend Fred Moran, as we usually do, as the podcast closes. I want to uh, encourage you, if you would like a copy of Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey, go to stevefielderbooks.com. And uh, you can use PayPal, use your credit card. I'll be happy to ship the book out to you at least the day uh, by the day after the day your order is received. Uh, I want to uh, wish all of you a happy 4th of July. That will be coming upon us pretty soon. I know it's a little early, but uh, we have a great country here, folks. We have the greatest life of any people that have ever lived on this this planet. We need to take care of it. We need to, to make sure that our country is strong. We need to honor our military. We need to honor our elected officials. We need to come together as one. And we need to come together in this sport of coon hunting as one and not be fighting with each other and quarreling with each other, as my grandmother would have said. I wrote a story in the current issue of American Cooner magazine titled A House Divided, and we know what the rest of that is. A house divided cannot stand. Unless we stop the infighting, the bickering, the jealousy, the envy, and all the things that tear us apart and find ways to come together, we'll lose this great sport of coon hunting. I don't want that to happen, and I know you don't either. 
With that said, I'm going to see if I can get my old friend Fred Moran, the red bone man on the phone. And if anybody asks you where Steve Fielder is, well, you know the answer to that. He's gone to the dogs. Well, here we are once again with my friend Fred Moran, the Red Bone Man. How are you doing, Fred? Wore out. Wore out. <laughs> hey, Till man, you up. have wore out three or four Until bodies in your... <laughs> oh, no. Well, I got I got to hear about it. Tell me about it. Well, probably started last last Thursday or Friday, Friday. I uh, naturally go on hunting every night, and nobody wanted to go. So I took one dog and decided to go myself. We got a bike trail about oh, a couple miles from me, and it extends all through about five or six counties. It goes a total close to 100 miles, ends up in Maryland. A lot of people walk it, ride a bike on it, or stuff like that. Yeah. It's good coon hunting alongside of it. And most places, it's legal to coon hunt there. The place I went, a guy owned some property adjoining it. He don't let nobody on it. But for some reason, he, he had a good day. And years ago, I asked him to hunt on there. And... To the best of my knowledge, I'm the only one that was allowed a coon on it. He just told me, make sure I stay out of there deer season because he feeds them deer and naturally he wants to get a big one for himself. And he's got some good ones on his property. So I went down there and it sends into a county park also. And in the county park, they do allow hunting in the one portion of it, but the rest of it's closed. Oh, I go down there. I just took one dog, a two-year-old I got. He's been doing pretty good. I turned him loose. After about 10 minutes, he strikes about 300 yards or 400 yards up the bike trail for me. Runs a short ways, trees. I go up and see a coon. I've Pleased with that, turned him loose again. He strikes another track and goes up the bike trail about 800 some yards. He trees. I go up there and I get all oh, probably within, I say, uh, 50 yards off. He shuts up for some reason. This dog don't shut up. He barks hard and he's loud. And, uh, I keep on walking. I'm looking at the garment. I get with him. He still hasn't barked in the last, say, four or five minutes. I get within 32 yards of him. Can't hear him. I had all my dogs with a little light on the collar, too. That avoids some traffic yep. problems. I don't see the light. He has a red light on. I don't see it nowhere. But I'm getting that reading. I get within 20 yards, I'd say, of him. Can't hear the dog walking. He ain't barking. Jungle in there when you get in in certain parts of that. And I got into a certain part. I'm <laughs> calling him. He ain't coming. And the dog listens pretty good. 
I tone them with a toner, and usually I don't even have to tone this dog, but got no response. So I pressed the button, the magic button. He <laughs> didn't let out a holler. He still didn't come. And according to Garmin, I'm almost on top of him. I walk into where I think he's at, no dog. I look all around, calm and everything. I'm disgusted. And uh, where could he be? I looked everywhere I could down there. I finally give it up. I called him, and I just can't believe this dog listens that good, and, uh, and he ain't responding, and I don't know where he's at. According to Garmin, I should have seen him. Yeah, I get after a good 40 minutes, I decide to leave. And there's a way to get in on that bike trail. Those gates are across there. And there's there's a place you can get on, bring the truck down. He ain't supposed to, but I figure I'm going to try that. He hear the truck. He might come right out there. Well, I walk 850 yards to the truck and I hear him treating yet. But to me, from where I'm at, it doesn't sound like it uh, the same place he treed before. Right? I'm not about to walk 850 yards back down to the bike trail and then three or 400 yards up from there uh, to locate him. Okay, Fred, let me interrupt you here. What kind yeah. of terrain is that? What's it like there off well, that trail? Well, on the bike trail, it's naturally all level. It's yeah. a, I'm right along the river. The mm-hmm. river's on it's about 100 yards of wood between the bike trail and the river on the lower part. On the right, the upper side, it's all hills, and it's more or less straight up. I got you. Uh, and you can make it, but you'll know you walked somewhere when you mm-hmm. do. I get back to the truck and I hear him treat. I go down there and it sounds like he's clear up in the park. I drive up into the park and uh, police patrol that. And now I know two boys, they told me you can hunt him in a certain place in that park, but not all. Well, where I drove, you're not allowed to hunt air and be in there, but I want to get my dog. And uh, I didn't care if I had hired the police. In fact, I used to work for them. And uh, so they all knew me. And um, I figured majority of them was going to say, hey, Fred, I hope you find your dog. But I didn't. I drove back and forth all over. Couldn't find a dog stop three or four times. He ain't treeing no more. I did that till 1.30 in the morning. I'm by myself. According to the Gorman, I walked six miles so far that night. And uh, like I say, mm. still ain't got my dog. I figure I'm going home. I'll come back right at daylight. There'll be people out here walking this trail, riding their bikes and well, I went home, went to bed. I could not sleep. I got back up at 4.30. I thought, I'll go back down there and try that bike trail again. I go back down the bike trail. It's just breaking day, daylight, about 10 after 5. I get up. Oh, here's the best part. I take my 
uh, I take my daughter-in-law's bicycle. I take the dog box out of the truck, throw the bicycle in the back. I figure I'll ride that bike trail. If I get the dog, I don't have to walk it. I'll ride real slow and the dog will follow me. At least I'm thinking he will. So I get the bicycle and throw it in the back and I head to the bike trail. I get down there and I never realized it when I put the bike up in the truck. The tires are about, oh, one fifth filled with air. And they're almost <laughs> flat. Oh, I no. says, this ain't going to work. I can't <laughs> pedal a bike with two flat tires. So I had a chain with me in a lock. I pulled the bike back out of the truck and chained it to the front bumper so nobody stole my daughter-in-law's bike. I start walking up the bike trail again. I get back to the spot where I lost the dog, uh, three or four hours before. Don't hear him. According to the garment, he's 300 yards further up. That means he's up in the park somewhere. I figure, well, I'll drive up there. Well, it's quarter after six and my phone rang. I knew this was somebody found my dog, I figured. And sure enough, that's where it was. The woman says, you missing a dog? I said, I sure am. She says, where are you at? I says, I'm on the bike truck. She says, well, I'm up in Cedar Creek Park at the fishing dock. I says, it's going to take me a half hour to get there because I got two miles to walk back to get my truck and drive around. She says, what part of the bike truck are you in again? I says, the lower part. She says, I'll tell you what, do you know where West Newton is? I said, yeah, I already live a couple miles from it. She said, I'll meet you at the Giant Eagle, which is a supermarket here. I said, that'll be fine, ma'am. I hurried up, got down there. When I arrived, at the, uh, she told me what kind of car she was driving. Uh, she says, uh, I'll see you down there in the parking lot. We both arrived at the same time. She come in from one way, I come in from another. She says, he's all, he's all pretty tired. I said, you ought to see me. And uh, <laughs> anyhow, yeah. she says, I fed the dog. She says, he was hungry. He ate a whole can of dog food. I give him some milk. I said, bucks for giving me a call. And I put my dog in the back seat of the truck. And one thing about him, he behaved good. He laid down on that back seat like he was a regular passenger. <laughs> and I finally headed on home. I was wore out. I figured I'll sleep all day. And well, I didn't. I was, I got maybe an hour and a half sleep, but I felt pretty good. But I was wore out. That was another experience. I went to a night hunt and I, didn't feel like going. I thought I should stay home. One thing about hunting, uh, just at, uh, pleasure hunting, you quit when you want to. Well, I decided to go to a night hunt. It wasn't far off, about 50 miles. Hmm. And I didn't <laughs> take that dog. I said, I, you had enough with me to, for one night. I took another dog. But anyhow, we got. I got to talking to some coon hunters down there. And we was talking about the bike trail. And 
they says, I says, I was in there last night, factory force of the night. We were then there. I said, I never heard no other dog. They says they didn't hear no other dog either, but they says somebody was riding through the park back and forth. We seen their <laughs> headlight. He, he said, we ducked. He says, because we was coon hunting in there, and we just held our dog and ducked until them headlights disappeared. I said, that was me. How'd you get in there? I says, there's ways to get in there. I didn't want to tell them because I figured they'll have better access. Because they they parked in a legal spot, but they ended up in a spot wasn't legal as far as hunting. I don't know what if the cops had uh, give them a ticket or not if you got caught in there. I'll wait till I get caught. But uh, <laughs> I like to say part of it is legal, though. And it's, it's always easier to ask for forgiveness uh, than permission, yeah, right? For, <laughs> you you hunt at ease, but uh, like I say, I've I've hunted in there before they ever made it a park. And the only thing is, I I got good access to one place. That's the guy that lets he don't let anybody hunt. I don't know what made him let me hunt in there, and I've been hunting there and starting a lot of times in his property. He don't have a lot, but he has enough, and you treat some coon. His yeah. son-in-law used to be a coon hunter. He's dead now, but uh, uh, I figure he would be used to coon hunters, but I guess he isn't. Uh, well, what's the deal? Let me interrupt you here. What's the deal in in Pennsylvania about uh, the age? Uh, do you still have to buy a hunting license there? No. You could come to Pennsylvania and hunt. As long as you don't have a firearm, you can hunt without buying a license. I see, but is there an age when you don't have to spend, uh, don't have to buy a license anymore? For instance, you I, I you live. Don't need, yeah. You don't need a license whether you're five fifty or five hundred. As long as there ain't a firearm, you're only running the game. Uh, you don't need a license I of see. any kind. I see. And, well, when I lived in North Carolina. I, uh, when I turned 65, I got a lifetime license. They issue a lifetime hunting and fishing license and, uh, it's, it's renewable year after year. I mean, I don't have to renew it. Uh, I know when, uh, I moved to Florida and then decided to go back up to North Carolina to do some fishing and all, and I asked about my license. They said, you have a lifetime license. And I said, well, I don't live in North Carolina anymore. And they said, it doesn't matter. It was issued as a lifetime uh, license, and it doesn't matter where you live. Uh, you don't have to have a license. And then when I moved to Florida, uh, we don't have to have a license at all if you're past 65. Uh, all you have to do is show them your driver's license, your ID, well, to prove your age. Up here, you could get a lifetime license also. Mm-hmm. You could got it at 62 if you want it. And um, it, it's good uh, forever. Uh, and uh, it, it, it was the wisest thing I ever bought, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, heck, I've been using it for uh, 20-some years. And uh, <laughs> uh, you... Uh, Think about it, folks. This guy's been 
retirement age for over 20 years, right. and he's still coon hunting. All right. <laughs> Fred, you're well, amazing. I tell well, you, I love your stories. I, 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 I'm amazed. Uh, I have sugar, and I took my reading after I got home, just for the heck of it, because I did some walking. I said, this will get it done. It was the lowest I ever had in my life. And usually when you get it that low, uh, I don't mind telling, it's 66. And you start getting the shakes and everything mm, else. Mm-hmm. But I wa- wasn't. I was. I never felt better. I, I really felt mm. good. And uh, I was surprised that I was that peppy and so forth. Well, my but, doctor yeah. keeps telling me, you know, it's eat healthy and exercise. So maybe there's something to that. I don't know, but it certainly helped me. And one other time, I did the same thing, uh, walked a long ways that night hunting. And I got a, that, this week was the lowest I ever had in my life uh, on a sugar reading. And, but uh, one other time, I got a real low reading. It wasn't 66, but it was, I think, in the 70s. And, uh, I thought I better do this more often. My doctor will be proud of that. Do you but, file any, I say file, that's kind of formal, but do you let the people like in your family know when you're going hunting and where you're going? Nope. They raise hell all the time. <laughs> uh, uh, why don't you I go imagine... with somebody? Why don't you go with somebody? I said, if I die, just put a flower on my body and leave me there don't worry about it (laughs) fred you're amazing that's a great story i'm glad you got that dog back for sure Uh, me me too yeah and uh hey man our time is up again for this uh, week but uh, man i look forward to our visits each week and and uh you got plans to go tonight no i don't go uh uh, what am I talking about? What is this? What, what day is it? Today is Tuesday that we're, we're Tuesday. recording on Tuesday. Uh, yeah. Well, I see it stop raining. I fell asleep for a little while. It was pouring down rain. It's supposed mm. to rain all night. Yeah, I'll go if it ain't raining. I went last night, me and a girl, I call her the blonde bomber. Oh, She's yeah. a character. <laughs> And I yeah. met her by accident. Yeah, you told us. A, a, yeah, yeah, you told us about her. You, she was well, watching deer, and you, you yeah. told her about her better place, right? Yeah, well, she went with me last night, and we mm-hmm. got in a another a good legal place, a lot of food <laughs> there, but it is thick. And I says we got within sixty yards of the dogs. I took two young dogs, a two-year-old and a one-year-old. I got them, but with that two-year-old, was the same one I had down the bike trail. I says, what do you think? You've seen enough coon and so have I. It's only 65 more yards, but I'm tired of going through this jungle. I said, I'm going to call them in and we'll quit. I says, and that's what I did. I whistled Mm. with the whistle. They both come to me just like they were trained to. And we put them on the leads, and we came home. And what? another thing, my one garment went bad. I don't recall her. I don't know what happened to it. I got a, somebody looking at it right now. And um, uh, we put them in the truck and come home because I figured 
one chance a million or one car eight <laughs> and working, I'll lose that dog tonight. Yeah. So. Well, folks, we, that's what you learned in 85 years of age and, and all these well, years. I don't know too, if I learned anything. <laughs> I know I was sure disgusted. But, yeah. Uh, well, Fred, yeah. listen, you take care of yourself and you call somebody when you get ready to go hunting oh, so they know where a, you are. And them two boys that were hiding in the park, they said, why didn't you call me? I'd have came out and help you look for your dog. I says, uh, what's your chance of me catching you? It was a good <laughs> night. You'd be goon hunting too. Yeah. He said, well, my cell phone's going to ring. And, and then another guy overheard the conversation. He said, Fred, call me anytime. I'll come out and help you look for your dog. Well, I did call one boy. I didn't mention it. Zach Kane, he hunts with me when he ain't working. And I let it ring. He, his answering thing don't come on till about the fifth uh, ring. I yeah. called him four or five times in a row. And right when I knew the answering machine was coming on, I hung up and then let it ring again. So I figured sooner or later, it's going to wake him up. But he never answered. Oh, he could sleep a, through a thunderstorm yeah. <laughs> or tornado. Well, Fred, uh, it's great to visit with you again, buddy, and I'll be calling you again next week for sure because I know you're going to have some adventures to tell us about because yeah, any guy that goes in, hunting as much as you do. Hunting, who knows? So. Yeah. Well, listen, you take good care of yourself, sir. I see. And uh, uh, if you go tonight, I wish you good luck, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, good enough. You yeah. want to say anything to JJ before we go? Nah, JJ's probably sleeping. So <laughs> he's like me. He needs an afternoon nap. <laughs> okay, uh, folks. That's, all right. That's, we'll see you. All right. That's the great Fred Moran, the Redbone Man, 85 years old, still coon hunting regularly, handling his own dogs, as you can tell, teaches them to handle. Uh, and uh, just an example there of these fellas offering to help Fred and and all. There are some advantages when we get a little older in age. People do. Uh, there are uh, a few people out there still that do respect their elders. Well, that's all for this episode, folks. I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, once again, if they ask me, ask you where I am, you tell them that I'm like Fred Moran. I'm out there, and I'm gone to the dogs. 